Hey, good morning, church. It's great to see those of you who are in person and so thankful for those of you who are joining us virtually. We launched a vision in our church last April, uh, and it is based around the word, the phrase, the awakening, that we want to be a church that helps awaken each other and awaken the world to the greatness of Jesus. We also launched eight core values last April, and we've been going through them. We've been taking one core value every month, and we have some prayers and some focused efforts to try to live deeper into those. In the month of January, we focus on the core value that we genuinely care for uh, physical and mental health. We focus on that. We understand we're especially living in a time right now where emotions and, and we are pulled in a lot of different directions and, and we care about and we pray in accordance with uh, how God wants to make the whole body, the heart, mind, body, and soul to make it whole. Uh, this next month in February, we're going to focus on our core value that we are honored to carry a ministry of reconciliation. If you were to go to our website at sycamoreview.org and go to our vision page where there are core values, the first core value you see is that we are a church that anticipates the movement of God. So when we come together, we anticipate that God's on the move. God's not stagnant. God's not on vacation. God isn't distant. God is involved. God is here. And not only is God present with us, but we come into a place like this, into a time like this, believing for great things, that God is on the move. God is the ultimate reconciler. So when it comes to what reconciliation means, we look at how God reconciles the world to God's self and what that means for us. And I'm glad God doesn't go about reconciliation like many of us go about reconciliation. Because I've yet to meet anyone who is anti-reconciliation. But a lot of us are all for reconciliation as long as other people move to where we are so that reconciliation can happen. But reconciliation doesn't happen that way. Reconciliation is about movement. So even when it came to God reconciling the world to God's self, God moved. God didn't wait for us to get to where God is. God came and met us where we are to reconcile the whole world to who it is God, God wants us to be. If you want to be about the ministry of reconciliation, the best way to do it is to have a foundation that is what we've been talking about the last few weeks. We've been, uh, I've been unpacking Mark chapter 12, what is known in Ju Judaism as the Shema. And Jesus quotes this. Jesus was once asked by a teacher of the law, what is the greatest command? So of all the commandments in the Bible, which one is the greatest? And Jesus said, the greatest command is this. And he quotes straight from Deuteronomy 6, where Jesus says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And you love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest command is to love God with everything you have. And right next to that, right behind that is the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Casey's done a great job in our family trying to recite this with our kids. Casey has hand motions of loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, your mind, your strength, everything you have. And hopefully you've been able to commit this to your memory too. And when it comes to loving God with everything you have, it's easier said than done. But I think all of us can get on board with, yeah, that is something we need to do. I think Jesus is in the presence of people in Mark 12. Even though they're trying to catch him in a lie so they can do away with him. When they heard how Jesus responded and Jesus responded with the Shema, I think everyone around him, even all the opponents, they were like, yeah, we agree with that. It's easier said than done. When you're trying to love God with everything you have, at least you can begin with the fact that God loves first and that God loves back. So any effort to try to love God is because we're responding to God's love. And any effort to try to love God, God is going to respond back. But it's not that way with love your neighbor as yourself. 
You can try to love your neighbor as yourself, but there's no guarantee they're going to love you back or like you back. Which is why this is the one. This is the one. Jesus talking and living, loving your neighbor as yourself. This is what helped get Jesus killed because he believed this to the core of who he was. So let me just ask. All right, how many of you have ever had a neighbor that you've really liked? Just a show of hands. How many of you, like you've had a neighbor. If I were to ask you, who is the neighbor in your life who has been kind and good, like a name comes to mind? People who were really good neighbors. Now, let me, also, let, let me, let me ask this. How many of you know a neighbor in your life is like the worst neighbor you've ever had? Like you know who they are. They're the people who either played music loud or they're the people who got mad when you let your dog poop in their front yard or, or vice versa, right? Like they, their dog, their mufflers on their truck were loud. Like they were just mean, bad neighbors. And this isn't just true with neighbors. I mean, you can probably think of coworkers you've had who've been like the best coworkers and those who you couldn't stand and, and maybe even relatives, those you really liked and those you really didn't like. And today I want to help unpack in Luke chapter 10 a story where the Shema is present. So I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And as you go there, I want to back up just a little bit. Over the holidays, I was doing a lot of visioning and, and sermon uh, planning for throughout the entire spring. And, and I usually do this where I sit down and I try to make sure and I, I wrestle with God and I pray and fast and think big picture of what is one sermon series. How is this going to go into the next one so that there can be this journey that's honoring our vision and our core values and where God is and, and the kind of people God's calling the church to be in the world. So I'm considering all these factors. And I knew we were moving into a new year in 2021 where we're moving into a new year where a lot of us, we're just being hit by the waves of life. And some of us are in deeper waters than others, but the waves of life, the storms of life just keep coming. Waves of a pandemic, waves of social unrest, waves of your own grief in your life, and, and, and uncertainty about job and the future and dreams and plans and like these waves. And we're looking for the light at the end of the tunnel and not sure exactly where it's going to be. So all this was in my mind as we were moving into 2021. So I knew I wanted to launch the year in a seven-week series and what we've been in called One Love, where we've been talking about the greatest commands given by Jesus, to love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no better foundation than that, than to love God and to love neighbor. So I knew I wanted to help us. This is like Christianity 101. As hard as it may be to try to live into this when it comes to what it means to be followers of Jesus and a church that takes seriously everything Jesus wants us to be about, loving God and loving neighbor, this is like Christianity 101. This is it. And then I started thinking about the journey up to Easter. I usually do a seven or eight week series through the Easter season and maybe just beyond Easter. And it hit me a while back, a few months ago, that this is probably going to be the only Lent, Lenten season or journey up to Easter that we're going to be fully immersed in COVID-19. In the year 2020, it was mid-March when things began to shut down. We were kind of in the middle of that Easter journey. In the year 2022, we all hope that we're somewhat on the other side of COVID. We think we're going to be in a better place. But in 2021, we're going to be fully immersed in it. And as I knew, I knew as we were moving into a new year, we have people inside the church who were reaching for an anchor as they're being hit by all the waves of life. And we have people all around us who are outside of the church or disconnected from God and they're reaching for anchors too. 
Like when the waves of life hit us, we're looking for some kind of security, something that can stabilize us. What is an anchor, a source, like just some kind of foundation. And, and, and a lot of times when I'm walking with people through life, it is about helping people connect to the ultimate source of life. Because if we're not careful, we reach for all kinds of false anchors that may bring a little bit of security for a short season, but it's not going to bring you the kind of security that you need for the rest of your life. So as I thought about that Easter season, I just kept coming back to the idea of anchoring. And my prayer was, God, help anchor the Sycamore View Church in the gospel, in the center of God's heart, of your heart. And then also, God, help us to be a church that is helping all these other people around us, all the people we come in contact with in neighborhoods and workplaces in this neighborhood right here, that we will help them anchor to the ultimate source of life too. And as I was praying and thinking and sermonizing, I, I decided over the holidays, it just hit me. So over the holidays, I, I wrote a book to be a resource for this journey to Easter. It's called Anchoring in the Storm. It went live yesterday. And, and what we're going to do, this book is going to coincide with a sermon series I'll begin on February 21st. So today I'm going to talk about Luke 10 and Jesus in the, uh, Jesus in the Ditches And next week, I'm going to talk about Luke chapter 4, Jesus on the margins. Two weeks from now, I'm going to preach a sermon on God, the ultimate reconciler. And then on February 21st, we're going to start a seven-week series called Anchoring in the Storm. This book's going to be a companion and a resource. And here are just a few things I want you to know about this. One, uh, as a church, uh, as a leadership, we're going to get one of these books for every family unit in our church. So every member in our church, every family unit will receive one of these books. It's coming to you. It's 82 pages, 20,000 words, eight chapters, short book. We can do this together. I wish I could tell you it had pictures and really cool things you could color and scratch and sniff and some of those things that are more intriguing. It's just a bunch of words, all right? Just 20,000 words on pages. But we can do this together. The second thing, we're going to get a book to you. You don't have to come get it. It's going to come to you, to your house. The second thing is I'm asking you to purchase a book. They're available on Amazon, Kindle and physical book. And I know all of you have Amazon accounts. And I know because right now, if you go a week without buying something on Amazon, Amazon's probably contacting you wondering, are you still alive? What's happening? Are you, are you cheating on Amazon with someone else? Right? So you can, you can get on Amazon. I'm asking you, will you buy a book for a family member, a friend, a coworker, or a neighbor? Because all of us are in need of anchoring. And the season of Easter is a season of anchoring. So the book, is, it just processes some of the storm stories throughout the Bible. And I look at some of the things we learn about God in each one of those. And what better evangelistic tool or what better way to try to invite people on a journey with you. And thirdly, will you join me in praying just the word anchoring over this church and people around us. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says, it's re- referencing Jesus, but that Jesus is the anchor for the soul. And this needs to be our prayer as we move throughout the next few weeks and next few months, that God anchor us in the only source of life. So that's uh, what to expect in a few weeks. Today I want to unpack Luke chapter 10. And I want to get down in the weeds just a little bit and point out a few words and phrases and walk you through this narrative, but I don't want to get so far in the weeds that I miss out on the bigger picture of Luke chapter 10 of what Jesus does with this story called the Good Samaritan. Maybe... It's a story in the Bible that Jesus tells that is known more than any other story. Maybe the prodigal son, but there are non-Christians who know the Good Samaritan story. 
It's a phrase that is used, and it comes straight from Luke chapter 10. So I want to get down in the weeds just a little bit and then hopefully pull us up. Okay, what does this mean for our lives? In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it begins with a guy coming into the presence of Jesus. Now, in Matthew and Mark, there's a story that we've been focusing on the last few weeks where a teacher of the law, a lawyer, comes into the presence of Jesus and says, what is the greatest command? Now, Luke doesn't tell that story. But Luke tells a different story that also has the Shema. And in Luke's version in Luke chapter 10, what happens is a teacher of the law, a lawyer, comes into the presence of Jesus, and his question is not, it's not about the greatest commands. His question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There are two different times people come into the presence of Jesus asking that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Both times Jesus responds with, if you want to enter into life, not just eternal life, but let's just think about life with God that begins now and will go on for eternity. Now this guy comes to test Jesus. This may have been one of the 70 or 72 disciples in Luke 10 that went out on a mission trip and performed all these amazing miracles and and was able to teach in the countryside. And then they came back from a mission trip and there's a big celebration. It may be one of those. I don't know. But you get the sense that this is more of a hostile type conversation. The only time this word test shows up in the gospel of Luke other than this occasion is in Luke chapter 4 where Satan is trying to test Jesus in the wilderness. So he comes to test Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds in verse 26 with, what's in the law? In a lot of your versions, it says, like, what do you see there? I think a better way to see that or interpret it is, how do you read it? I try to teach people how you read the Bible is just as important as what you read. Like, I want people reading the Bible, but how do you read it? How are you letting it shape your worldview? What kind of questions are you asking? Is it just to stuff your mind with more information, or is it to know God? So Jesus is asking, all right, how do you read the law? And the guy responds with the Shema. In Luke chapter 10, it's not Jesus who quotes Deuteronomy 6. It's this other guy. So he responds to Jesus. Like how he reads the Bible is through this lens of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. He adds the tagline that Jesus had added. Most likely he learned this from Jesus. Got this from Jesus. Now he's reciting it. And Jesus responds to him by saying, that's the right answer. Now go and do this and you will live. So for Jesus, it's not about trying to outwit people around us. Or to know more. Because I think all of us, you know someone in your life who knows so much about the Bible, but they don't love God well. Like they may know a lot about the Bible, but they don't love neighbor well. For Jesus, this isn't just a matter that this guy knows the Bible and knows the law. It's how he's going to try to live it out in his life. Evangelism today is not just about what you know. It's that people see how you live. So Jesus says... Right answer. All right, so Jesus and this guy are on, they're on board with what needs to happen to inherit eternal life, like to live the kind of life God wants you to live. But the guy didn't stop there. So what the Bible says is the guy to justify himself. Maybe he wanted to know, like, what's the least amount I need to do to be saved? Maybe he's just trying to cover all of his bases. But to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because much like today, 2,000 years later, back then, 2,000 years ago, 
there were limits on who you had to love and limits of how you love. So he's, he's, he wants Jesus to clarify this. Who is my neighbor? And it's that question alone that leads Jesus to tell one of the most memorable stories that's been told in the history of the world. Who is my neighbor? And as Jesus begins to tell the story, there's this line. Okay, so in a lot of your Bibles, it says Jesus said or Jesus replied. The first phrase in that sentence isn't that Jesus said, it's that Jesus took this up. So imagine like being in a court or that Jesus took up the question, like Jesus is going to step into the question. So this isn't just the reply, it's that Jesus is going to fully like enter into this moment. He took up the cause, he took up what this guy is asking, and now he's going to reply to it. And he starts off with geography. There's a man, and there was a man who was traveling, and he was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, I want you to see on the map that you don't go from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, maybe sometimes you've heard people who are geographically challenged. Maybe they've said something before like, you know, I'm, I'm going to head down to Dyersburg this weekend, or I'm going down to Nashville, or down to Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, you don't go down from Jerusalem to Jericho. In a sense, you do. Jericho is 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is 700 feet above sea level. So when you picture the story Jesus is telling, over in the Holy Lands, there are very few flat places, a lot of mountains and a lot of hills, which made it really easy for a, a, for a well-put-together group of thieves to hide out in these hills. And then, I mean, this was common. Like when you travel to places, this was common to know that there are thieves and bandits all over the place. So here's a man traveling down. He gets beaten. He's left half dead. And then Jesus keeps going on with the story. There's a priest who walks by, but he passes by on the other side of the road. There's a Levite who walks by, but he passes by on the other side of the road. So you know right there, Jesus is indicting the priest and the Levite. Here are two men who they weren't the wealthiest people in the, in the culture around them, but they were two of the most well-respected professions. Priests and Levites in charge of the holy things of God. They were worship leaders. They were teachers. They, were, uh, they offered sacrifices. They helped connect people to God. And now as Jesus is telling the story, the priest and the Levite, they come and they pass by on the other side. And then there's a Samaritan. That right there would have caused anybody who was listening to what Jesus had to say. That would have caused them to probably step back. I mean, this, there had been over 700 years of animosity and hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Over 700 years of it. And, and Jesus talks about there's a Samaritan. This would be like me telling a story and, and then in walks a Nazi. I mean, think about the most hated person from a people group, from another people group, and that's it. Jesus talks about a Samaritan. Now, when Jesus tells a story, geographically you have Jerusalem to Jericho, but then if you look at the map, Samaria, which is a region, it's not a city, if you go to that next image of the, of the map. Samaria is like way up there. So as Jesus tells the story of a man traveling between Jerusalem and Jericho, this guy from Samaria, he's a foreigner in a land. He's not on his home turf where there's someone who is injured. He's the, he's the illegal immigrant in another place. And now he's going to do 
what, is it, what, what shows mercy? So it's a Samaritan who sees someone who's wounded, goes over and bandages wounds, and heals this person, puts them up in an inn, helps to heal them back to health. And then Jesus asks a question that everybody should be able to... This isn't a hard question. This is an easy question to answer. Jesus asked the teacher of the law, of these three people, the priest Levite and the Samaritan, which one shows mercy? Which one is the good neighbor? Like, this isn't hard. And the person, maybe because of so much hatred in her heart, maybe because of so much animosity between Jews and Samaritans, this person couldn't bring themselves to say the Samaritan. But they did say the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, that's correct, right answer, go and do likewise. Go and live this out. So this is a well-known story. And we read that story, and it's easy for us to ask, what does it mean for you to be the good Samaritan in your life? And a lot of times when we think this story, or if somebody were asked, how do you apply this to your life? The first thing we think about is you're driving in a car, and you come up to a a stoplight, and there's someone who is holding a sign. When you came to church today, no matter what direction you came from, I bet most of you passed by someone on a street corner holding a sign. If you came from the interstate and you turned on the Sycamore View, you probably passed multiple people holding signs. I pass these people every day that I come to and from the Sycamore View campus. There are people on I-40 and Sycamore View. If you turn, there are people sometimes on um, uh, Shelby, Shelby Drive and Sycamore View, Summer and Sycamore View, Raleigh LaGrange. So a few years ago in the life of our church, some of you remember this, we, we had baggies with body, uh, bottled waters and with uh, peanut butter crackers and granola bars. And, and we would have these baggies and you could pick them up when you left church and, and they were for you to give to people when you pulled up to, to stoplights. And there were people who were, who were holding a sign. Whatever their need may be, we had something to give them in the name of Jesus. I remember a few years ago, we were coming up uh, Sam Cooper uh, as a family, and we came to the stoplight there at, uh, at I-40. We exited, and we came to Sycamore View, and, and we didn't have, I, I don't carry cash. So I didn't have any money. We didn't have one of those baggies with us. My boys were a lot younger, but my boys were always looking out for the needy who we drove by so we could give them things. We didn't have anything to give them. I looked around. There was nothing, and my boys started saying, well, give him something. And I'm like, well, I don't have the power to, like, make bread or fish appear all of a sudden to give them. And I'm not joking. Like my boys are like questioning my love for God. Like you stand up in front of people and you talk about loving God. Now you're not going to help these other people. And I was a little offended with how much my kids were going after me for not having a merciful response. So I did what every good parent would do in the moment. I turned the music up loud (laughs) to drown out my kids telling me to help people. I think how often do we turn up the music to try to drown out just the groans and the cries of the needy. So what does it mean for you to be a good Samaritan in your life? It's one way to think about this story. Another way to think about this story is if you were half laying in a ditch, half dead, wounded, and you open your eyes, who would be the last person in the world that you would want to see standing over you with bandages. The last person in the world. So the person who you may consider like your greatest enemy. So, I mean, picture like 
Taliban. Picture SEC fans. I mean, picture whoever it is. Who's the last person you want to see? And that's part of how Jesus tells this story. In this story, Jesus is confronting every kind of ism. Jesus is confronting every relational phobia that people had in their lives. Jesus is confronting. Jesus is going after the 700-year history of animosity between Jews and Samaritans by telling this story, the Good Samaritan. He's confronting every form of racism and ageism and sexism, and the list could go on. He's confronting it. Because Jesus came to implement an ethic where it's not that Jesus was coming to a people group to love those who were close to God and to hate all the enemies of that people group. He, he refused to be a part of that kind of ethic. And Jesus didn't come to love one group of people and to hate that all of your enemies. Jesus came to kill all the hatred inside of us for our enemies. So in telling this story, he confronts all of this. Now, I'm not going to end this message by giving you like five points of how you can go live this out in your life. And I'm not going to do it because Jesus doesn't do it that way in Luke 10. All Jesus says is go and do likewise. Like Jesus leaves it to individual and communal imagination for you to wrestle with what this needs to look like in your life. But I do want to offer two things for you to think about. And the first one is this. As Jesus tells this story, the first thing he has the Samaritan do is to go to the person who was wounded. You have a priest and Levite who walked by on the other side of the road. They stayed far away. And they may have been going to do really biblical, like holy things. They may have been going to synagogue or, or to church. Like they didn't want to get bloody. And they didn't know if the person was already dead. Who, who knows why? But the Samaritan shrunk the distance. Proximity changed. The Samaritan entered into the world of the wounded. Right? Got close to them to check the pulse. To, 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 to see what kind of wounds were there. And when it comes to following God, when it comes to following Jesus and how Jesus enters into the ditches of life. This is what Jesus does. Jesus shrinks the proximity. Jesus shrinks the gap. Jesus enters into these places. And the second thing I want you to think about is this. If you want to be someone who lives a kind of good life that takes advantage of these kind of opportunities to be a healing presence in the world, you've got to work every day of your life to prepare and equip your heart and mind to be ready for when those moments come. I'm not the only one who has had those moments or those opportunities that have presented themselves in our lives, and we blew it. We either said the wrong thing or ignored an opportunity or who knows what, but we blew it. And sometimes the reason we do that is that we're not taking time with God every day, right, to center our hearts in God so that we are prepared, so that when those moments come, we're ready to respond. And here's what I want to give you a lot of hope today about this story is that Jesus embodies everything good about the story of the Good Samaritan. There's not a part of this story that Jesus tells that Jesus didn't model in his own life. 
Jesus didn't walk by on one side of the road and toss a lifeline and hope you could catch it so he could pull you in. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't come to you when you were half dead. Jesus came when we were dead in our sin, met us where we are, got down in the ditch with us, became our sin, lifted us out, placed himself inside of us. Like Jesus has embodied everything good about this story and then asked his church to embody that same goodness as we live our lives too. So may God give you, may God give us imagination this week of what it means to live this out. If there's anything we can do for you at sycamoreview.org, we have a connect card with ways you can uh, can give us things to pray over. Any way we can help you. This morning there may be somebody in just the prayer, the cry of your heart is, I just want the courage, I I want the courage to live this out in my own life. If there's anybody here in person, we have one of our elders will be outside of this room to the right to receive you in room 100 if there's anything we can do for you. Let's stand together and let's sing this song as a declaration today.